welcome to Relational Introvert, a podcast about the often overlooked people and leadership strengths of the quiet ones. I'm Nancy, and I look forward to sharing stories and lessons from my life, plus inviting other relational introverts to share theirs. This is very much a journey. It's a path to understanding ourselves and the diversity of people around us. So join me every Monday, and let's see where this road leads. On today's episode of Relational Introvert, I'm really happy to have with me my guest, Gina Leslie. Gina, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Nancy. This is my first podcast interview, so I'm pretty excited. Why don't you share a little bit about yourself with everyone who's listening? Who is Gina? I like to take a different approach to my introductions these days. I am a daughter and a sister and a good friend. On the professional side, I work in a not for, in the not-for-profit sector. I've worked in the not-for-profit sector for a long time. At my core, I am a giver, and that's probably why I've been in that space for such a long time. And I currently work as the Senior Manager for Strategic Programs for Invest Ottawa, which the title the title means very little because at the end of the day, I wear multiple hats. So that's that's me in in a nutshell. My the mo- the majority of my career, I've spent working either in the not for profit sector with uh, technology companies or with startups and small businesses. There's been some overlap across those three over the years. So you mentioned that this is a new way of you introducing yourself. Why did you do that sort of a split? In over the last few years of my life, I have realized that a lot of my identity has been tied up in my career and my profession. And I've had to take a step back from that a bit and ask myself, who am I outside of those things? I think it's very easy these days for for folks to really tie their entire identity to their work. And it's it's great if your work is something that you love to do and that you absolutely love and that you feel very strongly is is your life's calling and it doesn't feel like work. Um, but if it's if you're not that tied to it, that emotionally tied to it, then why should it be why should it be the the driving um, defining factor for your identity when you know, you're so much more than that. And I, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been an interesting journey, just learning to sort of how to decouple myself from, from my career and from my work. For you, is there a story that comes with that? About four and a half, five years ago, I had a breaking moment in my life and that led me to come to grips with depression for one and burnout. And What was interesting too is that at the time I was going through a very difficult period spiritually as well. So it was a lot of things culminating all at once. And a good friend of mine, she recommended working with both a therapist and a spiritual advisor at the same time. What she didn't tell me is that it's intense, especially if you especially if you have the good fortune, because it is a blessing to be able to work with people who are invested in your healing. But when you find people like that, it means you have homework every session. And so the process of healing, of of working on yourself, feels like a full-time job in and of itself. Just the process of working with all these folks, of doing therapy, of working with my spiritual advisor, of supplementing that with different um, 
different courses, uh, such as um, Dr. Margaret Paul's Inner Bonding course, um, doing a mindfulness workshop for eight weeks. All of that information was, was what gave me time and space to really reflect on myself outside of the context of my work, not just to strengthen the core of my identity, but also so that I could better define what it is that I wanted for my life moving forward. So it's been quite the journey. And then I think that's the question I have is it's not, it doesn't sound like it's something that's ended. No, it hasn't. Um, for better or worse, it's been pretty intense. On the depression side, that's sort of ongoing management and I'm learning as I go. And the thing with, with depression and burnout is that it can create physical illness as well. So there was sort of all of the physical byproducts that I also had to navigate alongside the mental health challenges. So it's been an ongoing journey. And what's been interesting too is as I'm working with my therapist, I'm you unpack one thing and you address one thing and something else comes up. An onion analogy I don't think is probably the best analogy because it's not necessarily always layers. It's just different elements. It's different stuff that keeps coming up. So um, yeah, it's been an ongoing journey. We attach meaning to a lot of different things and we talk a lot about letting go of those meanings, but we forget that the letting go of it is not as easy as that. And it's not just a matter of like, just change it. I'm not saying it has to be difficult either, but sometimes some of these things are so long held as part of these belief systems that we have that letting go of them, there's like a grieving process. There's this loss thing because you're like, well, if this is gone, then who am I without this? So to your point about this career piece, we all do this. And I find like um, it happens a lot with women, especially too, where you're like, you know, the career becomes so part of who we're trying to identify ourselves with, or it could be women who our mothers and they're like you know that's a big part of who i've identified myself with and we become so attached to it so that it's like if that goes away who am i in the absence of that and that's actually a significant question and a significant loss if we don't if we're not able to answer that question to some in some way we have to give make room for compassion for ourselves and it's something that i I didn't really understand or or learn about until in the last four years when I'm having to exercise compassion toward myself and learn what that actually means. That's important in the in the process of learning to to let go and to allow that to feel that fear of you know this this foundation possibly crumbling and at the same time to just step into that fear and say, okay this is okay what I'm feeling. It's okay that I'm feeling afraid, but this is what's best for me. And me, me showing myself love or showing myself compassion is me pushing through this and doing what's best for me, even if it hurts now. And a great analogy, because this actually came up in, in a work context. I was talking to one of my direct reports and asking him, what is your vision for the system that you're building out? And he says to me, we're going to have to break the system a bit if we want to build something better. And I said, you know, that's okay. I get it. We just need to communicate that to everybody in the organization to get their buy-in. If, if, if it takes breaking the system in order to build something that ultimately is going to serve us better in the long term, let's do it. What part of your journey have you found the most 
roadblocks from a family perspective and friend perspective? There's a lot of overlap between my spiritual life and my depression. There's quite a bit of overlap there. And so I think as I'm working through that, I find both pieces I come up against quite a bit of resistance from my family because I'll have family members who understand the depression piece to some extent, but then they don't necessarily understand what I'm experiencing in my spiritual life and vice versa. And so being able to explain both in a way that makes sense um, is one thing. That's one challenge, but it's also, I can explain something to a family member but they're only interpreting it from their, their worldview, their lens, their experience, their knowledge. And so it's not going to translate the same way. So they're going to try to solution for something they don't understand, which drives, I love them, but they drive me crazy. <laughs> a, a great example is I had a um, Christmas dinner last year or the year before. And I'm sitting at the table with three of my cousins. Four of us are sitting at the table having a conversation. And three of us have been in therapy before because three of us have tackled with, are tackling depression. And the fourth cousin says, she, she's the eldest of the group. And she starts laughing and she says, you're all so young. What do you have to be depressed about? When I'm feeling depressed, I just pray. And I'm just looking at her like, you have got to be joking right now. <laughs> this is, I get that that's her approach, but her understanding of depression and her experience of depression might not be the same as mine. There's depression where you have a down period or you just have a day or two days where you feel down. That's fine. That's a depressed mood. When you're suffering from depression that's ongoing, that you can't explain, that's not tied to a short-term period, that's a whole other experience and a whole other conversation. So her response just, one, it wasn't compassionate, but it also just didn't fit the problem. It didn't align with what we were, the rest of us were experiencing. It's the conflict of trying to solve problem solve with people who love you. They love you so you know they have your best interest at heart, but they're not objective and they will always be trying to solve just to help you solve the problem, even if they don't understand what the problem is. Depression can be downplayed because it's like, well, why, why can't you pray through that? It's something that can be fixed. God you know, is overseeing all of that and he can fix it. And even though I, I have not struggled with depression, but you know, going through, let's say, a difficult time, you wonder, like, is my faith not strong enough that I'm not able to pray through this, right? And, <laughs> and you kind of ask these questions and, and they are well-intentioned when like the support comes in and the prayer comes in. And I think all of that is good. Um, but to your point, something gets missed when we, I think it's anytime we try and solve something instead of really taking a moment to understand where that person is coming from in what they're facing. And that takes a special kind of ability to actually sit with that and not try and solve it per, for a person. And I think sometimes that's what happens with any time, even with a spiritual piece too, is you might end up thinking that why can't this be fixed by praying? And, and I think it's because there's these misconceptions about depression as one example or addiction or any of these things, they become misunderstood in this way of that it's just an easy solve. 
why else do we have really good spiritual advisors and really good therapists in place? Like if, you know, they are also there for a reason. And sometimes we forget that answer to prayer isn't always just the, that this is gone. It's also, it involves you have people who intercede, like who come into that journey with you and they can be this amazing answer to that prayer that brings you to a place. And I love what you're sharing is that through this four-year journey, it's not just a depression. Like I am learning and uncovering so much more that is going deeper. Um, and I wonder if you didn't have those people with you, these couple people who are supporting you through that, if you would have been in this place of journeying the way you are. There's a phrase, it takes a village. Beyond my my therapist and my spiritual advisor, there's been my my personal trainer. I exercise has been a big part of navigating that depression. And so because of the effects of the depression of um, one of the effects is you you lose interest completely in, in everything that typically you would be interested in doing. For the accountability to make sure I was getting that exercise, I got myself a trainer. You know, at one point it was my chiropractor because one of the effects, the physical effects of the depression was that my lower back started to give out and I was getting back pains all the time. And so all these people have been part of this journey for me. And, and you know, I've had... Um, the family members who could relate to elements who were also part of that journey with me. And, and so I think the more apt phrase is no man is an island. And I think even in the evolution and rediscovery of who I am, it's taken all of these people walking with me and me standing on their shoulders to get to where I am now. And to your point about that, that intersection of, of faith and depression and being able to, to really critically question, why can't I just pray my way through this? A great example from the Bible is the story of a king who has a, like leprosy or some kind of skin disease. He's told that he needs to, to talk to some prophet to get advice on what to do. And the prophet sends him to a river and says, dip in the river seven times and you'll come out, you'll be fine, you'll come out clean. And the king is like, dude, I came all the way here for you to tell me to go bathe in a river. I could have done that at home. Aren't you going to do something more miraculous? Isn't like something, you know, he's giving all these examples of what, it, what the experience of healing should be for him. And I think we sometimes assume that our experience of, of healing in this natural world should look a certain way, should look supernatural. But the fact of the matter is, Sometimes it's really simple. Sometimes it's, yeah, you need to take medication, eat better, drink water, do some exercise and go see a therapist. Like it's, it's not that deep. It's really not deeper than that. So coming to terms with that is, well, I can't speak to any other, any other or faith group, but for the faith group I grew up in, which is, is Christianity, I think for the church, a big challenge is to appreciate the simplicity of healing, of what he, the healing process can look like and to not overcomplicated or assume that it always has to look a certain way. I loved how you even differentiated between like a depressed mood versus depression. We all feel blue at some point, but that does not necessarily mean you have depression. Somebody struggling with depression, it's it's a it's a different it's a different beast actually. And what happens is because I think there's just this societally there's this misunderstanding. I think we're getting we're we're expanding on that now from a cultural perspective, there's misunderstanding. And then on top of that, you add this layer of the history of how things are understood from a spiritual level too. They all have these layers of misunderstanding around it. 
And so, yeah, it becomes very challenging. Then if you're struggling with that, you're like, how do I navigate through these layers of how society perceives it, how my culture, like how I've been raised around it, with the language we use around this. And then on top of that, spiritual and spiritual is especially heavy for those of us, like to your point, like you're raised in a certain way, but then for a lot of us, we decide that that's a big part of our compass. Like when we talk about our moral compass, it's a big part of our life. And when that feels counter to something that you're struggling with naturally, you're like, you have these questions of yourself. It's unfortunate. This place that you're supposed to get the greatest joy and comfort ends up being the heaviest burden. And for someone who can't find support in that space, I can only imagine what that's like. You start to question everything. And so that brings me back to that sense of like that foundation is shaking and you wonder like, where do I go at this point? There's a lack of critical thinking and just being willing to challenge, challenge what we know and to push the boundaries and to bring our faith alongside to, to apply that critical thinking lens and that lens of being, of, of questioning, not just to how we understand the natural world, but how we understand the spiritual world and, and what we perceive it to be. A lot of the, the scientists that are well recognized were people of faith. And they were still able to apply a very critical lens to the world around them. And because of that critical thinking skill, presumably able to also apply that lens to and how they perceived God as it were. Yeah. And, and there are folks who are, at least in the Christian faith, foundational to where it is now, who were criticized and chastised because they were pushing the boundaries they were in fact pushing the boundaries of how people understood how people understood the church how people understood god how people understood the faith i think in a lot of ways that's been lost i don't know if it's a function of how the faith has evolved or just a function of the era that we're in because when i think about how social media how people respond to news even people will get up in their feelings over a 140 character Twitter soundbite that is missing all context, all nuance, and people get up in arms. It's incredible to me that we have gotten to a place in, in our culture and in society where people are okay with not having full understanding and not having full information and not thinking critically about what it is that they're reading or hearing or receiving and simply responding out of this emotional place. There's, there's going to be carryover from that in, in, I think, every facet of life, including hope, including faith. I feel that we've come to a place where questioning, and not just on a faith perspective, let's even look at it in you know, the example that you use, like there's a Twitter feed that comes out. And if you don't line up with exactly how everybody's thinking, and even if your questions are like in any way inquisitive, about something that should be agreed on, it becomes this polarizing piece and that's problematic. And even like, it's, it's a learning journey for me too. So if somebody asks me a question and I think that it's a foolish question, maybe it's something that you're like, oh, why would you ask me that? I think it's really important for us to weigh where did that question come from? Because sometimes people don't know what they don't know. A really good example of this is, you know, um, um, I mean, I've certainly experienced in my life where I'll get, depending on wh where in the world I'll go, I'll get questions like, where are you from? 
for some people that's they find that an offensive question for me i've never found like i've never found it offensive except if i can gauge where that question is coming from because more often than not that question is coming from a place where a person's like i've never actually either haven't seen someone like you or i think you're from here but then i'm not quite sure and it's an it's more inquisitive and someone once said this idea of ignorance they said we're all ignorant just about different things and i think we have to come to an understanding that we all have a level of ignorance there's none of us in this world who knows any everything about everything and so i think about that and i said well if i was to ask a question of someone about where they're from or about their background i would hope that they would know my question is never coming from a place of like trying to be mean about it it is ignorance in the sense that i don't know kind of ignorance and the sooner we can all accept that that each of us has that um i think the more forgiving we will be about questions now you can certainly pick up when someone is asking you something and be like that question was that's coming from a very different place on a trip last year we were i was you know it was a bunch of us friends we were traveling we went to greece and obviously you have a bunch of brown and black women going through greece and they're like they don't look like everybody around there and so there was a couple there from australia and so he just happened to be sitting next to me we were chatting and he started to ask me a question and so my background has a lot more than living in canada like background in like traveling in other places living growing up elsewhere so he asked me some questions about it and i was very happy to answer those questions because for him i could tell that he was purely curious and he's trying to figure out tell me a little bit more about you like i don't understand so would you consider this home or is this home and they were all very valid questions coming from someone who's only lived in one place his entire life and i could assume that his network is probably more like him than uh than quite diverse part of critical thinking is questioning and if we want critical thinking then we also have to be open to the fact that people will ask us questions and be open to that and sometimes those questions might be things that they might be coming from a place where they don't agree with you and that's where the questions are coming from and i'm like as long as you don't want to sit here and debate with me i'm completely okay to have a conversation of a differing point of view because i'm actually curious like sometimes i wonder how did you even how did that thought process even come to you i i have no idea but if we can't have that conversation in a non-combative way doesn't mean we have to agree at the end we may still walk away going you know what i still don't see your point of view but at least i can walk away understanding that this individual like we've had a conversation and maybe we've been able to even if it's not about the opinions what we've been able to shift is our view of each other there's so much that can be behind those questions though whether it's it's from the person asking the question or the person receiving the question because i think about the question of where are you from and i have a friend who is her parents are originally from uganda but she was born in the uk so she's a british citizen technically and she grew up in ghana but now she lives in canada so the question of where are you from is not an easy question to answer and of course now she has a north american accent so you could make any assumption and probably be right <laughs> and again to what you're mentioning before it's it's being able to discern where is this question coming from because if someone with a north american accent is speaking to me regardless of what they look like i'm going to assume that the answer to where they're from is some where in north america 
So when I hear people say, somebody in North America asks them where they're from, even though they have a North American accent, I'm like, why? Clearly they're from here. Like, what what do you mean by where are they from? And I think too, there's the added layer of frustration within the community of color, broadly speaking, of the education piece and answer and the and navigating the microaggressions and having to answer questions that sometimes are considered stupid questions, which stupid question is 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 a misnomer. I wouldn't say they're stupid questions. I say the questions are coming from curiosity, but it's a curiosity that's based in an incorrect assumption and an assumption about national identity and about what that means. And it's the weight that those assumptions carry in terms of how the person asking the question might then treat you based on their assumptions. So there's always so much behind it. And I think that's why sometimes people get offended and up in arms when they get those questions that should seemingly just be really simple. It's there's so much behind those questions and it it makes conversation really difficult. But if we are going to move forward as a society, I do think we have to be on both sides. I think there needs to be more thoughtfulness about the assumptions you make when you ask a question and whether or not you even ask the question and if this question is even warranted, if it's even necessary. And on those of us who receive those questions in terms of being, I don't want to say a bit more patient, but a bit more thoughtful in terms of how we respond or whether or not we respond. Join me next Monday, July 13th, for part two of my conversation with Gina. We'll talk about how Gina's introversion plays into her leadership, her self-care, and her ongoing discovery of her core identity. So don't miss out. Be sure to join us on July 13th. Hey, thanks for joining me for another episode of Relational Introvert. If you liked what you heard and you're curious about what's next, be sure to listen to new episodes every Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and more. And if you know someone else who might enjoy this podcast, please share it with them too.